Well, let me do a poll real quick. Uh, how many of you are pastors? Okay, how many of you are in like formal counseling ministries? Right, how many of you are on the road to be ACBC certified? It's something you want to do. Okay, let me ask one more question. How many of you need to change? There we go. Some of you didn't raise your hands. And it, there are cameras here, and we're going to come find you. Because if there's anything we can all agree on, it's that we need to change. The need to change is really almost a given in our culture. Um, but when we start asking the question, how do we change? Uh, why do we change? Who needs to change? And what is the goal or the target of change? When we get into those kind of details, that's when uh, really the debate starts to get heated. And because I'm a curious person, I wanted to see what the world of psychology and secular counseling had to say about those questions of how, why, who, what of change. And I found that there are over 300 counseling theories, 300 different counseling theories that give various answers to that question. How do we change? What do we change into? Who needs to change? When it comes to these questions, you could, these theories rather, you could probably lump them into six categories. But the point I want to make here is that when it comes to answering the question, how do we change, when do we change, why do we change, who needs to change, the world, of course, is in disarray. And everyone really, in one sense, just sort of does what is right in their own eyes. Right? Everyone just adopts their own sort of theory from this buffet of something like 300 series, uh, counseling theories. One psychologist from the William and Mary School of Education, after pointing out these secular views that there are something like 300, he wrote this. In light of all these options, how do counselors come to know what approach is the right one for them? To answer that question, he says, it is first necessary to understand that no one counseling approach is better than the rest. 300 options, none of them are better than the others. That is because, listen closely to this, that is because counseling approaches are based upon theories about human function and change as opposed to hard evidence. So 300 options, you just choose which one is best in your own eyes because they're all based on human theories and philosophies. Now, if you're here this morning, you strongly disagree with this, right? Uh, we have something that's superior uh, to the worldly wisdom that's on the sort of buffet of 300 different options for counseling and how to change. We have the Word of God uh, that is superior and sufficient, superior to all other methods and sufficient in that it gives us all that we need uh, to know how to change into the image of God. Let me silence my phone here. And so my task in this lecture is to lay out for you 
God's method. And I want you to see that this is not just another sort of option on the table, but this is the way that God has decreed that men and women change for His glory. Okay? And when we talk about change, we're talking about the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And I want to take a few minutes just to remind you of what that is. Progressive sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. That's progressive sanctification. It's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. That's a definition that's from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And it's concise, accurate, clear, and helpful. Another definition is one I first heard from Dr. Street and Dr. Stuart Scott. And I'm not sure. I've heard it from both of them in different lectures. I'm not sure where it came from. But they described progressive sanctification in this way. Progressive sanctification is a lifelong cycle of sin, repentance, renewal, and growth toward Christ-likeness that will only be complete when we meet our Lord. This is accomplished through the active discipline of the believer himself who trusts that the Holy Spirit is energizing his efforts. Now, I like that definition. It's more detailed because it underscores that change, the process of change, it's not instant. It's a lifelong cycle of growth towards what's the target? Christ-likeness. And the culmination of all of this effort, this change that we're after, the culmination of that will come when we meet the Lord in, in, and we're glorified. And then it's carried out. I also appreciate this. It's carried out through the active discipline as the believer participates with the Holy Spirit who energizes his feeble efforts. All right, I think that's a great explanation. Now, if we wanted to picture this, it would look something like this. I think I've given you this in your notes. The image here is from Paul House's Charts of Systematic Theology, and he captures the idea well of biblical, the biblical perspective of progressive sanctification. Of course, it starts with regeneration there at the cross, and then it progressively grows in, progressively moves towards Christ's likeness. The target, of course, the very peak of that arrow would be heaven, where you are glorified and you finally become like Christ. So the biblical model then is that the Christian progressively grows. He goes back and forward, up and down, until he finally becomes like Jesus. And for the Christian, there's no greater joy that you can conceive of than for you to actually live and be like Jesus, right? And that's true joy. We are the happiest when we are the holiest, right? So that's the Christian's target. This is called, traditionally it's been called the reform perspective because we derive it, um, it's articulated probably most clearly in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of this, but I have it in your notes there. It's just a very thorough, helpful articulation of what sanctification is, progressive sanctification. What is the process? Okay? Now, 
it's helpful for us not just to say this is what progressive sanctification is, but I think it's helpful for us to look at the opposite side of the coin. What it's not. All right, it is this, but it's not this. It's not, first, justification. Justification and sanctification are to be separated. Justification is a legal standing. Right, it uses... Uh, the language of the courtroom to describe the believer's permanent relationship with God. That's justification. It's a once-for-all declaration. Justification is God declaring you to be what you are not, vertically. This is what God does. It's also an entirely and completely a work of God. If you are saved, it's not because of anything you did. Justification is God's work. Man simply receives that by faith. Not only that, it's a complete work, justification. It's complete, it's entire, it's, it's finished. And then it's also equal among all Christians. I'm not more justified than you, you're not more justified than me. To be justified is to be justified. Now, contrast that with sanctification. We see that sanctification is really, in many ways, the opposite of justification. Sanctification is an eternal, internal, not eternal, but internal condition. It's not an external declaration of what we are, but it's an internal condition. It's also ongoing throughout life, as opposed for that once for all, or to that once for all declaration. On top of that, in sanctification, God and man work together. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. All right? Man joins with the maker, his creator, to work and to labor, to become more like Jesus. That is not true of sanctif- or justification. Right? We don't do that in justification. Sanctification is synergistic. Justification is monergistic. Also, sanctification is not complete in this life. But how many of you are perfectly holy? Don't raise your hand. We'll come find you. Sanctification is not complete. We wish it was, right? I mean, our greatest struggles and pains in life as Christians is when we sin against the people we love the most. Boy, if we could have it our way, we would wipe out sin entirely, right? But sanctification is not complete. Justification is, you can't be more or less justified. You're either entirely justified or you're not. Sanctification is different. And also, lastly, it's not equal among Christians. You know this. There are some Christians who are more sanctified than others. So it's not equal. Now, let me just say... To confuse justification and sanctification is a recipe for disaster, despair, and soul destruction. Right? If you mix these two together, you're going to be in bad, bad shape. I mean, just this past week, I was meeting with a man, and actually we have met for six weeks at this point, and we have just been working through the gospel. And you know what I've been doing with him? Trying to untangle 
decades of him mixing and weaving justification and sanctification in together. Whereas he, so he, so that rather he was living his life thinking that when he sinned, God was now angry with him and he had to sort of work and do penance to make up for what he had done. Right? That's the intermingling of justification and sanctification. And you're going to have people like that if you um, become a counselor, if you're just a discipler, whatever it is that the Lord calls you to do. You're going to have people like that in your life. In fact, some of you may be here right now, and that's where you are. Right? You wrestle with assurance of salvation. Well, a lot of times, I mean, maybe you have some sin, hidden sin in your life, but a lot of times, folks who are struggling with assurance... What they've done is they've mingled justification and sanctification and they're just struggling because they think that God's expecting them to perform and sort of earn a standing before Him. That's not true. Uh, Justification is God's vertical declaration of who we are. That's unchanging. It makes us a child of God. It makes us who we are. It's the gospel. Sanctification is that horizontal working out of that reality that God has declared to be so. Okay, does that make sense? You guys have any questions about that? I know it's really uncomfortable when someone asks a question in the middle of a lecture like that. If you do, raise your hand, and uh, I can I can hopefully help you to untangle that. Or you can think about it, formulate it, and we can talk at the end of all of this, all right? So just know that when we're talking about biblical change... Oh, yes, go ahead. Um, back when you were up there with God and man cooperating, you gave a Bible verse of Romans. Uh, for sanctification? Yeah, Philippians two twelve and thirteen. It's Paul. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. So, as you're counseling, as you're doing soul care for yourself, just make sure you distinguish the two: justification and sanctification. So, sanctification then is not justification. Also, sanctification is not perfection. It's not perfection. That's what our Wesleyan friends think. That at some point, you, as you're walking with the Lord, after you've been saved, that something happens. There's a second work of grace that sort of lifts you or catapults you to a state of perfection called entire or complete sanctification. And at this point, you now live in perfect love toward God and harmony towards men. All right? We're saying, no, uh, that would be wonderful. It would be, be so great, right? But that's not reality. And that's not what we see in Scripture. So justification is and sanctification are different. Also, sanctification itself is not perfection. Third, sanctification is not passive, which is the Keswick view of sanctification. It looks like Keswick, but it's British So it's pronounced Keswick. This is the view that says sanctification is a post-conversion experience that launches the Christian into a state of full consecration and total surrender where he subsequently lives the victorious life of internal rest and external victory. So when you see titles about victorious living, probably flavored in this direction. Now, the victorious life is the life we want to live. Amen? 
<laughs> we don't want to not live that life. Uh, but I want to just teach you, show you that sanctification is not passive in the way that the Keswick sort of understanding conveys. Because in this view, growth, at least true exponential growth, doesn't truly happen until you finally let go and submit your will and life fully to God. Right? Which, in one sense, sounds right. You let your, let it go and you submit yourself to the Lord as your only Lord and you follow His will and not your own. But what happened is, with this view, it tends towards and tended towards passivity. If you teach people what you really need to do if you want to defeat this sin is you need to let it go. Surrender your will to God and He'll take care of it. Well, what happens there is that it teaches people change is a passive affair. And that's not what we see in Scripture. I sometimes call this the Jesus-take-the-will philosophy of change. And so what happens... When you're going 80 because you're running late to get to the, uh, the counseling conference and you're you know, sinning against your conscience as you're driving fast to get here, what happens when you say, okay, this traffic is too bad, I'm going 80, I see it, I've got the red you know, mark on my GPS, I know it's coming. Jesus, you just take the wheel here. And you let it go. Now what's going to happen? <laughs> well, the same thing happens to your soul when you do that. Right? If you just say, I'm in a mess, Jesus, just take the wheel here. I'm going to sit here and do nothing. It's, it's destructive. And what happens is people just live in further enslavement for, to their sin. And then who do they blame when they're not victorious? They blame the Lord because they haven't changed. Let me give you one more thing. Sanctification is not justification. Uh, it's not perfection. It's not passive. And it's also not optional which is the Schaeferian approach to change. This comes from Lewis Sperry Schaefer at Dallas Theological Seminary, which says that sanctification is really only a requirement of those who have accepted Jesus as both Lord and Savior. Now, this view says that you can become a Christian early on in life and have no desire to change into the image of Christ. So you sort of live like a pagan and you're called a carnal Christian until one day... Maybe you rededicate your life and decide to make Jesus your Lord. At that point, that's when you start to take change seriously. And in this view, that's okay. Because sanctification is essentially an option for those of us who really want to follow the Lord. Now, of course, the Bible knows nothing of being a Christian who does not follow Christ or who does not bow to Him as Lord. So biblical change is not... An option for us, it is a requirement demanded of everyone who names the name of Christ. Okay, so we've talked about what sanctification is not, what it is, what it, theologically, the way that it's described and expressed. But what I do now is, is to transition over to looking at what it actually looks like in the wild. Right, so it's one thing to know the con- concept. Right, to see it conceptually, sort of have it on the bookshelves of your mind. But I want us to look at what change actually looks like in real life. How do you walk out these instructions to change biblically? Does God tell us to change but not tell us how to do it? 
Absolutely not. God commands growth in Christ's likeness, and then he gives us a process. And that's what Ephesians 4, 17 to 32 is about. So if you have a Bible, take it and turn to Ephesians 4, and we're going to walk through this passage together. And what I want to do is just spend our time looking at the sort of ins and outs of this passage, because it's the most comprehensive passage on how to change that we find in the scriptures. Let me turn my Bible there too. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll look first at verse 17. And verses 17 to 19, uh, just let me give you some headings here, give us what we could call the necessity for biblical change. The necessity for biblical change. So let's read, starting in verse 17. Paul writes, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. All right, so there's the necessity for change. I think it's pretty clear when we look at the first line. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Stop that. Don't do that. Don't walk as they walk. Now, backing up, we see from beginning in chapter 1 all the way up to this point, really to chapter 3, Paul has been laying down something like justification, who these people are in Christ, what God has done for them. Immovable, fixed, steadfast. That's all sort of justification, indicatives of what God has done. Now he's transitioned to what you must do. And he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. You've got to change. And what he does here as he walks through this is he first shows them the source of their behavior. You see that as we work through the verses, the source of their behavior. They walk, according to verse 17, in the futility of what? Their minds. Verse 18, they're darkened in understanding they are ignorant and then the last part there because of the hardness of their heart now if you just think about that you've got the mind the understanding ignorance and the heart all of that is referring to the inner man now we know proverbs 4:23 we're to guard our hearts with all diligence for from the heart flow the springs of life And so Paul starts by reminding these Christians here, don't walk like the Gentiles. And let me start by showing you where their behavior comes out of. It comes out of their heart. And their heart here is hardened and ignorant of the things of God. Paul says they're darkened in their understanding. Their thinking, their comprehending, their reasoning abilities are blank. They're dark. And on top of that, Paul says they walk in the futility of their minds. That word futility there uh, refers to a state of being without use or value. It's empty. 
Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? That may seem like a sidestep, but I think it'll make sense in just a second. What does it mean to be made in God's image? To act like Him. And He is a planning God, a thinking God, a acting God, a saving God, a rational God, right? Strategic, all those things. What is it that distinguishes you and I from the wild animals? Yeah, and we, we're created to worship Him, but we are made in His image. Are the animals not made in the image of God? No. No, they're not. They don't have a mind, an inner man like we have. And what Paul is doing here is he is saying, look, the inner man of these Gentiles is darkened, hardened, bleak, black, and it's not being used. Right? They're living in the futility of their minds. They're not engaging their minds, so they're essentially living like wild animals because their inner man is darkened, calloused, and unused. So inside, then, they are a mess, which leads to their actual behavior. The source of their behavior and then their actual behavior. He calls them callous. That's verse 19. To be callous is to have no feeling. Right, you sin long enough doing the same thing. You callous yourself and your conscience, really. Your conscience accuses you. You keep doing it. You get calloused. They give themselves over to sensuality. It's an interesting word. Sensuality there refers to a lack of self-restraint. Right, they give themselves over to their own pleasures entirely. Right, whatever feels good, they do it. This is all characteristic of the Gentiles. And then he says, they practice every kind of impurity with greediness. That's an interesting way of describing sin. We think of greed in financial terms typically. But Paul is using it here to describe this desire to acquire more and more pleasure. And really it's a desire to acquire more than is your due. It's like an insatiable hunger. This is why these you know, sort of internet scrolling, why that's so effective. Right? There's an insatiable hunger for this in the inner man of the Gentile. Right, the person without Christ. And these websites, these all of this social media design, all of this is designed to try to feel an insatiable hunger. And this sinner without Christ is greedy for that more and more and more, and they just want more and more and more. And so this is the way that these Christians in Ephesus had formerly lived. Right? Insatiably greedy for more desire, more pleasure, and they would follow that out. And so this was the type of living that marked them formally. They were simply Gentiles, unbelieving, leading a hard-hearted, callous, mindless existence, no different than the dogs and animals on the street. Right? If you think about our culture, society, this is kind of the push, right? We're just animals. We're just advanced chimpanzees. Let's just live like that. And this is what's happening here. And Paul says, look, you used to live that way. But don't do that anymore. Stop living that way. You are Christians now, and you must change. 
Right? You don't have to be defined by what you used to be. That's who you used to be, but now it's time to change. And in verses 22 to 24, he lays out the process for how to do it. I mean, just imagine, these people were in Ephesus. This was a very wicked society. I mean, very much like ours, probably worse, actually, in many ways. And many of them had lifetimes, lived lifetimes enslaved to these patterns of sin. And now Paul says, don't do that anymore. you got to change. I know it's hard. I know it's what you've always done. But now you have to change. And we have people that come to us in counseling, discipleship, lifetime enslavement to sin. I remember helping a guy who's 30 years enslavement to pornography. Lifetime enslavement to sin. And it looks bleak. It looks like, man, this is just too hard. But it's not. Not only is change commanded, but change is possible. Not because we're so great, but because we have within us the same Spirit who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. So we can change. And Paul lays out the process in verses 22 to 24. And so step one is in verse 22. He says that in reference to your former manner of life... Now that, of course, refers to what, what verses here? What is he referring to? What is their former manner of life? Verses 17 to 19. Right? This is the way you used to live. In reference to that life, you need to put that aside. Lay it aside. Literally, Paul is using the language of like taking off his cloak and his jacket and laying it down. Take that life, that Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 life, take that off and you need to lay it aside. It's called the old man. It characterizes who you used to be and it must be laid off it's that simple no it's i mean in one sense it is it's that simple but it's not easy to do i mean the lord's commands to us are pretty simple love him with all our heart soul mind and strength love our neighbor as ourself simple but hard to do right very hard to do and notice how paul describes the old man and in doing so he sort of reminds us that this is tough He said, lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So the old man is not just going to lay down for you. He is corrupted with the lust of deceit, meaning he's always trying to trick you into doing some sin. That's too hard. Oh, this would be better. Oh, this would be more pleasurable. Oh, you're never going to get there. So laying aside the old man is hard work. It's tough work. Which is why in verse 23, Paul tells us that we have to renew our minds. Right? You want to be ready to ward off the deceit of the old man? How are you going to do that? Well, not by following the lusts of your flesh, but by renewing your mind and being able to recognize sin for sin. And recognize the ploys and the schemes of the enemy. So he says, lay aside the old man and be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind. That is, that you retake control of your thinking by God's grace. The word renew means to bring it back to life. Implication, 
It was dead before. Of course, 17 to 19, your inner man, your mind, you weren't even using it. So it was calloused and darkened. But isn't it true that even as a Christian, often our minds become the same way? Right? We can just sort of mindlessly go through a day and never pray, never think about the Lord's will, His command for us. Why is that? Well, your mind is essentially lying there dormant. And what Paul is calling us to do here is to renew it, to bring it back to life. Don't let it lie there asleep. Wake it up, restore it, renew it, get it back to life and back to action. And of course, we do that not by our own self-will. We renew our mind by what? How is it that the Christian has to renew his mind? By the Word of God. Right? There's a great verse we love and we use all the time, Romans 12, 1 and 2. What does that say? Yes, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All right. Yes, be renewed by the transformation of your mind. It's an amazing verse. Because what Paul is doing there is saying, look, your body, you have to present it to God every moment of every day of your life. And you have to present it on this altar of sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really, I'm not really excited about sacrificing my life as a burnt offering every day. Right? I mean, that sounds painful and hard. But how can I get my body whipped into shape to do what it needs to do? I have to renew my mind according to biblical principles, and keep my body under subjection so that it does what I tell it to do, not what it wants to do. You see, the Gentile in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, they only do what their body leads them to do. The Christian, however, is someone who is led not by his instincts and emotions, but who is led by the Word of God. So we have to be people who are renewed in our thinking so that we live and we bring our bodies into subjection to the will of God and present it to Him over and over again, not as an instrument for our own pleasure, but as an instrument of service and worship to Him. You won't do that if you're not, Ephesians 4.23, renewing your mind according to Scripture. And so the great challenge, really, I think, in all of our counseling and discipleship and even the Christian life is transforming and renewing our minds according to the Word of God. Right? So much of our work is when we give homework, is when we give, you know, memorize this passage, that passage, read this, meditate on this, because we are trying to win the war that's between the ears. And if you lose that battle, you're going to lose the battle of life. But if you can win it here, then you can put on the new man and be God's kind of person, which is... The next verse. I realize that my stuff is out of order here. I don't know how I got 22, 24, 23. I'm not a math guy. That's pretty basic. What is that? Well, it should be 22, 23, 24. Put off the old man, renew the mind, put on the new man. So that's... Then the first two steps, put off the old man, renew our minds according to Scripture. We bring Scripture to bear on our situation, on our problem, on our life. And then verse 24, we put on 
the new man. And, and notice just how the new man is described. Which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. All right, contrast that with the deceptive, destructive nature of the old man. So the new man then is what God calls us to be. It's Christ's likeness over instinctual, fleshly, pagan living. And you, your default, is instinctual, pagan living. That's what it means to be a fallen creature. To live by your instincts rather than by the Word of God. So, what's the process of change biblically? It's very simple. It's the process of putting off sin, renewing the mind, and putting on righteousness. All right? Let's do it. Let me me give you a few implications here. What this means is that you don't tell people to just stop being proud. Oh, you've got a pride problem? I, I know the fix. I can take care of it for you. Stop that. I mean, sometimes that's what I just want to say. You want to say it too. This verse, this, this series of verses, remind us that change doesn't happen in a moment. And it doesn't just happen by the cessation of the sin. Right? If you want to stop being proud, you have to start being humble. Now, this is where it gets really helpful and practical. You have to stop being proud, sure, but you need to renew your mind and understand what pride even is. What is pride? You tell me. What is pride? It's what? It's a self-focus. That is a great answer, Elaine. A really good answer. Oftentimes we think of pride as kind of like, I'm going to beat my chest, I want all the glory, come look at me. Uh, and that's true in one sense, but sometimes pride can be kind of wimpy, right? It's a self-focus. Sometimes it can, I want all the glory and look at me, I'm beating my chest, but sometimes it can be me moping and self being self, you know, self-pitying here because I'm not getting the glory that that guy's getting. That's equally proud. And so this is a common to man problem. We all have it. We all face it. We all struggle with it. So the solution to that is not by saying just stop that, but we start thinking that pride is actually a self Focus. That's an issue, according to the Word of God. Right? What does Jesus say is prerequisite if we are going to follow Him? Deny yourself, Mark 8.34, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. Now, if you are just living for yourself and thinking about yourself 24-7... Are you following the Lord? No. You may be at church. You may be doing all the religious you know, things you need to be doing. But if you're sitting there just thinking about how you've been hurt, and you're just thinking about yourself, friend, you may be doing something, but you're not following the Lord Jesus in that moment. And to follow the Lord is to die to self and live for Him and for His people. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 5.15. Great little passage. Um, For our sake, that's not it. That's not the passage. 
Uh, someone turn to Second Corinthians five fifteen. Read it for us. How does that passage go? Yes. Yes. 521 is for our sake he made him who knew no sin. Yeah, he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. And we often think he died so that we could go to heaven, so that we could be pardoned of our sin. Amen and amen. But here Paul says, look, the very heart, the very reason Jesus died is so that you would no longer live for yourself. And here you are, every day, every moment of your life, who are you thinking about? I'm thinking about me. So how can we help the guy with a pride problem? Mark 8.34, memorize it. You teach him about this first so that he can transform his mind. So he understands. Look, this is a lot more than just people giving me what I'm due. He needs to learn that what he's due is eternity in hell, and anything above that is God's grace. That's what he needs to learn. And he needs to learn, Mark 8, 34, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, that his life is not to be lived for himself, but to be lived for other people. That's the renewing the mind. right? So he's putting off pride, and he's renewing his mind according to Scripture. And then what are some things we could give him to walk it out in real life? Like it's not enough just to renew his mind. What is uh, verse 24? Put on the new man. Meaning, you've got to do something, man. You can't just sit there in your office, you know, reading all these wonderful books, thinking all these wonderful thoughts about Jesus. At some point, you've got to get up and serve, right? So you've got a, a, a man who's struggling with pride, which would probably manifest himself in anger. Uh, he's he's um, irritable. He's, he's just got problems with everybody, right? Because if you're thinking about yourself all the time and people aren't bowing to your whim... You know, that gets uncomfortable. Right? This is about me. You should be bowing to me when I come home. Why are you guys still talking? And why is everyone not, you know, laying the carpet down, the real red carpet down, and, you know, being quiet and giving me what I need? Right? He's coming home from work thinking that all his family is there to do is to serve him. And when they don't do that, he, he punishes them. That's what anger does. So what can we do for this guy? We've showed him, look, this is pride. It's self-oriented. You need to renew your mind by the Scripture. Here's some text for you to renew your mind. And when he comes home, what can we tell him to be doing? To walk this out, to put on the Lord Christ. What are some things we can tell him to do? Serve his family. That's true, but I think that's too general. And this is just, um, uh, that's a great answer. But if if you tell him, go serve your family... He's going to be, get home and then he's going to be thinking about, okay, what can I do? All right, you want to give him some very specific things. When you get home, take your shoes off at the door and play with your kids for 15 minutes. Right? And love them. Whatever they want to do, you do it and you do it with a happy heart. Right? And you're reminding yourself, he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. I'm not just going home and turning on Sports Center. I'm going to play with my kids and I'm going to serve my kids. And then go in the kitchen after you do that. And help your wife with dinner. Before. She's telling me before. Susan. Suzanne is telling me before. And that's right. First, go to your wife. Right? She's priority. So go to your wife. (laughs) Wife. I am here to serve you. What what do you need? You've been working all day, serving all day. How can can I serve you? How can I help you here or there? 
And if it's my wife, she's going to say, please go play with the kids and get them out of my hair. <laughs> All right. So then you go play with the kids, okay? But do the wife first. Anyway, so you're giving him very tangible things to do so that he can put off pride, renew his mind, and put on righteousness, okay? So it's not just stop being proud. No one stops being proud. You start being humble. And you start living a humble, God-oriented life. But that doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't. We, we often, and people that come to us for help to change, are going to come and they want God to zap them and change them in a moment. That's what they want. They, they follow that Keswick, let go and let God way. I've prayed, and this is, this is the common, common answer. What have you done you know, in the PDI? What have you done about your problem? I've prayed about it, and I'm coming to you. <laughs> right? I've prayed about it. That's always there. You know, because in prayer, you should pray about it. But then you should get up and do your part. And that's where we fall short. We tell our kids, they, they you know, come knocking on the door, 12 o'clock, Dad, I had a nightmare. Okay, well, let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Dad, I did pray. It's not helping. Okay, well, what, after you prayed, what did you do? I started thinking about those things again. Okay, look, let's pray, and then let's start thinking about the Lord's power and His might. Right? Let's do that. And ask the Lord to help you think about that. Well, Dad, I tried that. Well, let's start thinking about something silly. Start thinking about something funny. Start thinking about something you, you know, sing a song, do something, but you've got to get your mind off of that, that nightmare. Right? So we tell them, pray and do your part. And this is the Christian life, right? Pray and do your part. People want, we all want change instantaneously. But that is just not the way it works. Okay. Um, we are moving, making good progress. Any questions about what I've just laid out there? About pride, change, put off, renew, put on? We're going to walk through some very specific examples in just a second, but I don't want to move on too quickly. Yes? Oh, okay. Uh, that's, so that is the lexicon, so like the Greek dictionary where I've got the definition for that word. That's what that is. Sorry, I should have given you a, a better explanation of what that was. Yes, ma'am. What's that example of putting on humility for someone who lives alone, a single person? Mm. Uh, even, even uh, well, it's easier with a, a child living in a home, but somebody lives by themselves. What was the example? Yeah, that's great. I wonder if, if, so the question is, examples of putting on humility for someone who lives at home, lives alone, single, lives at a home alone. What do you guys think? What are some examples? Okay, service in the community, service in your church. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yes. That's that's really thoughtful. So notes notes of encouragement. Sorry, uh, notes of encouragement to people. Um, you know, that's a, a a rare thing these days. We get texts, we get emails, but a handwritten note is just so thoughtful. Um, so that's a good thing. Someone else has said something. Hospitality. hospitality. Yeah, hospitality. Inviting people over to your home. Those are all great great ways to put on humility. Yeah. One word. Yeah.
have a wonderful voice. You have this very public ministry where you're constantly getting this exaltation. Yeah. You know, oh, you're so wonderful. And, you know, like I used to sing in church all the time, and I was trying to give God the glory, but I bring that pride back to me. Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. So the question is, how does someone who's maybe in public ministry, pulpit, preaching, teaching, singing, serving in some public capacity, how do they put on humility? Uh, well, I, I, just in, I mean, that's I don't have a wonderful singing voice, uh, but I do every Sunday. I'm a, the preaching pastor, pastor teacher at our church, so I'm in front all the time. And I'll tell you what I do. Um, and I don't have this down. You can ask my people. I mean, we, we love each other, but I, I don't have a monopoly here. But I think about John the Baptist. Uh, he must increase and I must de- decrease. Uh, so that's something I constantly think about. Uh, the other thing that probably I think about most frequently is that God has given gifts to people t- for the good of the church. Right? He gave gifts. Uh, for the good and the service of the church. So 1 Peter 4, 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. These are passages I think about that the reason you have that voice to sing so beautifully is to build up your church. And if you misuse it to build up yourself, well, the Lord has a way of taking those things away from you. Um, another thing I think about is my job is just to disappear. Right? When I'm teaching, when I'm preaching, when I'm leading a Bible study, I don't want anyone to leave there thinking, wow, he's great at this or this or this. Or, wow, did you see that thing on his head or whatever? You know, those are all distractions. And you're thinking about the speaker. Our job, I mean, preaching and teaching is a disappearing act. Right? We just want to get out of the way. That's what we want. And when we're serving, that's what we want to do. We just want to die. We want to get out of the way so that people think about the Lord Jesus. And they're not thinking about us at all. Right? That's the target there. So, there we go. All right, so here's what Paul does. It's just an amazing passage. This is a passage that you're going to come to over and over again, and you'll probably hear it taught more times than you maybe want to. Uh, but Ephesians 4, in verses 25 to 32, what Paul does is he then just sort of delineates some examples of what this looks like. Lest we think uh, God will zap us and change us instantaneously, lest we think we should tell people to just stop, Paul says, no, this is what you need to do. You need to have your people stop this, renew their mind, and put on righteousness. And just incidentally here, this this principle is called the replacement principle. It transcends the counseling room, discipleship relationships. I mean, it permeates everything. So, for example, with my children. uh, Oftentimes, my wife and I will look, our kids will sort of be chaotic in the living room, and we're thinking, what has possessed them? What, what's going on here? And one of us, who you know, whichever one of us is thinking acutely at that point, will say, uh, they need to put on. They need to put on. We've been telling them, stop running. Right? Stop jumping on that. Stop climbing on the refrigerator. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. You tell them, stop long enough. Well, then they just, you know, it's sort of paralyzing. You need to give them a put on. You need to have them, give them something to do. Right? And th- this is the way that God changes. And the replacement principle permeates all of scripture uh that's an aside here this is not a parenting class but it is on change all right change you as a parent help you (laughs) implement replacement principles in your parenting okay here's paul's examples of change 
How does the habitual liar change? Lies all the time. He can't help but lie. That's not true. It's not that he can't help but lie, but he's, he's habituated himself. He's in such a deep rut in his life that his default is to lie. So how does he stop lying? Verse 25. He lays aside falsehood, puts off falsehood, and he puts on speaking the truth with his neighbor. Why? What's the, what's the mind renewal part? Verse 20, end of verse 25. For we are members of one another. This is your body that you're dealing with, right? The membership metaphor. Why would your left hand lie to your right hand? Why would your left hand try to deceive your right hand to do something? It doesn't even make sense. So stop lying and just speak the truth to one another because you're members of each other. You're one body. So put off, renew, put on. How does the thief change? Verse 28. So how does a thief, how do we help a thief to change? Okay. Someone was saying something else back there. Very good. That's right. Sometimes we say the thief needs to just be told to stop stealing. Right? But that's that's not right. He needs to stop stealing. Certainly that's true. But then verse 28 says rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. This is heart transformation. To stop stealing is just a behavior change. We're after more than that. We're after mind-heart change. So the thief has to stop living for himself. Right? The thief is just living for himself. He's self-oriented. So he needs to be taught that Jesus calls him to die to himself and live to others. So go to work, stop stealing, go to work, get a job so that you can give to others. All right, what about speech? How do you stop cursing? Got a counselee who's just using foul language. It's very simple. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the hour, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Look, stop. You have to stop using that language, brother. It doesn't honor the Lord. Here's what you need to do, though. You need to realize, renew your mind, that your speech has an amazing capacity to build other people up. That's the renew of the mind part. And you're, self or, you're self-oriented in your, uh, your unwholesome speech. We need to get you to live for other people, follow Christ, and serve. And you need to realize that as you speak, you can either build someone up or you can tear them down. And it's amazing. So that it will give grace to those who hear. Your speech has the power, the ability in some way to give grace to people. What are you, you're giving them rotten fruit is what you're giving them. It's literally the translation. Unwholesome. That's what you're giving them. Now stop that. Understand what you're doing with your speech. And this is an amazing mechanism that God has entrusted to you. The monkeys can't do it. The dogs can't do it. You're a creature made in the image of God. You can use your speech in a way that honors the Lord. And even that fact, the put off, renew, put on, that in itself inspires hope. Because it says there is a way out. Right? You go to a counselor who's, you know, he's picked up from the buffet of 300 different options for changing. 
I mean, there's no hope there. These are all just man-based theories. We don't get to give that. We don't have to. We should not, and we better not be giving out these man-made theories. We have to give an account to our Lord for what we're doing with His sheep. And when the sheep come to us and say, how do I change? I need to change. We better not tell them, well, stop that. We need to say, stop that. Look what God says about this reality. And start implementing it. And then we stick with them as they work through the process of change. It's hard, it's difficult, it's painstaking, but it's possible. And the very fact that you can give them that reality that God gives you the way to change, that itself grants an immense amount of hope to counsel these. So let me give you a couple takeaways. Biblical change is possible. It's possible. I remember a story of John Street saying that he was counseling a guy one day, and uh, he gave him some instructions, and the guy said, Yeah, you know, I'm... I'm in my 40s now. You, know, you, just can't t- t- uh, you just can't teach an old dog new tricks. And John Street just smiled at him with his big smile. And he said, uh, well, that's great. Because you're not a dog. And you can change. Uh, change is possible. Biblical change demands personal effort. This is where we come in to help people. Change is hard. It's, but it's possible. But it demands effort. You're not going to change on a whim or by accident. You have to work at it. Biblical change is not linear. There are setbacks. There are challenges. No one just project, progresses upward uh, without any bumps in the road. We have to remember that when we're counseling, discipling. People have setbacks. That's true. People have relapses. People turn back. That's where we get to go and be like James and snatch them out of the fire. It's a wonderful calling that's on us as ministers of the Word of God. And I'm calling you that because you're going to be taking the Word, and you are doing that in counseling relationships and discipleship relationships. Biblical change, that is not... This is different than my slide. Um, Biblical change is hard. It's often incremental, that's a given, but it's hard. It's difficult. It takes labor. Biblical change, lastly, is... Uh, requires, rather, endurance. Biblical change requires endurance. It requires effort. It requires patience. It requires endurance. Hebrews 10.36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So don't exit. Don't hit eject on your counselee when they're struggling. right? When they're, they've turned back. You you have to call them to faithful endurance and to change. All right, I'll be down here. If any of you guys have questions, I'm happy to talk with you. You're good for your 15-minute break.